Welcome to the Intercultural Music Initiative podcast, where we go behind the scenes with the amazing artists and composers who help us create culturally diverse music programming. My name is Tina Sayers, and today I'm speaking with pianist Camilla Arcu. Camilla will be performing at the second concert of our 2022-23 season on Sunday, October 9th at 3 p.m. This concert will be held at the Webster Groves Presbyterian Church, and tickets can be found on our website, www.imusici.org. Liberian-Norwegian pianist Camilla Arku draws on her diverse background as inspiration for her work as a performer and educator. Her repertoire is as much inspired by her heritage and travels as it is by her love for the visual and poetic arts. A graduate of Yale University and the Royal Northern College of Music, Camilla is currently a PhD student in musicology at New York University. Camilla gave her London debut recital at the renowned Pianists of the World Series at St. Martin's in the Fields in 2013, and has since performed as a soloist and chamber musician in the UK, Europe, and Africa. As a performer, Camilla is passionate about introducing audiences to lesser-known repertoire and regularly programs music by female composers and composers of color. In addition to performing and working on her doctorate, Camilla is committed to volunteer efforts and is the founder and director of Music for Liberia, a charity supporting young people in Liberia through music-based fundraising. Most recently, Camilla launched the education initiative, Hashtag Every Voice Challenge, a curated collection of piano music which promotes composers of color to educators and students. Camilla, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for having me and for that very kind introduction. Oh, well, yes, you're a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> I introduced you as a Liberian Norwegian pianist. Tell me about your background and where you were raised and where do you call home today? Thanks for that question. I'm very proud of my diverse heritage. My late father was Liberian. He was from Lofa County. And my mother is Norwegian. She was raised just outside of Oslo. I was born in Geneva, Switzerland. So I was there for five years before I moved to the States. So I grew up in Northern Virginia, and that's where I first started piano lessons. I'm actually now, I'm between London and New York. So after my studies, actually after my undergraduate studies, I moved to the UK to pursue my master's and then ended up settling there for about 15 years, eventually in London. So that's that's where I call home. That's where most of my family is now. And as you mentioned, I'm now a PhD student at NYU. So last year, I relocated to Brooklyn, New York, where I live with my partner and our English bulldog. <laughs> so yeah, so home for me now is somewhere between London and, and Brooklyn. I think I'm what you'd call a third culture kid or fourth culture, fifth culture, something like that. Isn't that wonderful? I love how diverse that is. Have you been to Liberia before? Yeah, I, I see. The first time I went there was, 
I want to say 2016 or 17. Um, so while I was growing up, there was conflict. So it was impossible for me to go there. But as an adult, I, I visited when I started kind of fundraising for Liberia. And that was a really amazing experience. I mean, Liberian culture is something that I'd grown up with. Obviously, I had a lot of family in the States and grew up learning a lot about the history and the country. But going there for the first time was really moving. And since then, I've been back, I think until the pandemic, I tried to go every year. Sadly, I haven't been since 2019. But I'm hoping to go again in the next year. And I can't wait. Oh, good. What is it about that culture that you found surprising or that you found different than you expected or or exactly as you expected? <laughs> That's a really good question. Because it's funny growing up with this familiarity with culture without actually having been there. And my father really kind of instilled a love for Liberia in our family and just kind of an interest in the culture. Yeah, because it must have been like this, you know, idea in your head that was formulated by what he told you. Yes, it was a huge presence. I mean, even remembering the kind of landing at the airport and just my impressions, like the feeling of the heat. I went there during during rainy season and feeling this humidity and and taking this long road from the airport into the city and meeting and meeting the people there and kind of seeing how much people loved their country and all of the hopes and the dreams that they have for the country mm. and how much they want the world to know about Liberia and how much they want to share the culture. That's, I think, one of the things that impressed me the most. And especially kind of meeting meeting their young people, meeting the students, um, really being inspired by how much people want to give back to their country and how people really take this traumatic history they've had and and want to remember it and, and learn from it and move on and improve things. I find that really inspiring. Also, the food is really good. Is it really? (laughs) What's what is typical food that they eat? Uh, There's there's a lot of there's a lot of rice and greens. I'm vegetarian, which isn't very typical for for a Liberian. Okay, but I eat a lot of plantains when I was there. A lot of greens, a lot of rice. Um, Gosh, my favorite meal is tobagi, which normally isn't vegetarian, but I make vegetarian versions. And what is that? That's it. Like for some reason, I can't even remember what's in it. It's just so good. It's like a stew <laughs> on rice. Oh, oh I <laughs> love just, it. All of my Liberian relatives would be very annoyed at me right now. Um, <laughs> that's okay. You're on the spot. But yeah, it's a good a good spinach and rice too. That's that's a good stew. My mom actually, my mom is Norwegian, but she's a great connoisseur of Liberian food and she makes a mean spinach rice. Oh, nice. Oh, that's <laughs> really cool. Nothing like the food to really get you into the culture, right? Yes. And whenever I, I talk to Liberians, I'm like, tell me something that you want the world to know about Liberia. Food is one of the first things people kind of throw out. There's a lot of pride and with good reason. Liberians obviously have the best jello rice in the world. Wow. Well, now <laughs> you're making me want to go. <laughs> 
Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I will. Well, you have a very impressive resume, especially for someone so young. Being a concert pianist requires tons of practice and preparation, not to mention the time you have to spend on publicity and networking and even traveling. I don't know how you have enough time and energy to do all that while also working on your doctorate and acting as director for your nonprofit organization, Music for Liberia. How are you able to juggle all of those responsibilities and tasks so well? I've gotten really good at Google scheduling. So <laughs> I used to handwrite my schedules, but now I have a very organized kind of color-coded system that's been working for me. But that's something I think about a lot. And it was one of the is one of the considerations when I was thinking about applying for a PhD. Because um, mm-hmm. I really, I've always enjoyed having all these different areas that I work in. So formerly that was being a performer and being an educator and working in nonprofit. So yeah, so thinking of adding kind of academia to that was a little bit intimidating. Um, so what's helped with that is I've really been focusing on what I what I value. So I think about the things that are important to me that kind of can bridge all these different areas. So for me, the idea of community, the idea of of music as something for social good, music as an instrument for change. Basically, the thing that I love, music, um, I think it can do a lot of good in the world mm-hmm. and it can really bring people together. So I've found that that's a connective thread between these different things that I do. And the things, the activities and the events, um, the projects that I found the most fulfilling will bring together the different areas of my life, but kind of around this idea. So for example, um, one of my favorite projects with my nonprofit was a a collaborative performance I did with a visual artist, um, a wonderful Canadian light artist named Jordan Soderbergh-Mills. And we did a collaboration where... We're going for the idea of impressionism, but we drew from French repertoire and music from the African diaspora. And then Jordan took these pieces and he interpreted them through light projections. So wow, we had a live performance where I was playing this amazing music and, and he was performing as well. So interacting with the music through light that he projected onto the walls of the venue. And this was all a fundraiser for, for a children's home that we support, that Music for Liberia supports in Liberia, and rural Liberia. So that project allowed me to do something that was really inspiring for me as a musician and something totally new. But it was bringing people together, it was bringing together our audience, our supporters, so that we could make a difference in Liberia as well. Oh, that's beautiful. So I think... For me, it's trying to think of everything I'm doing going in the same direction. And that's, I'm trying to weave that in with academia as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is your focus for your PhD and how are you weaving that in? Yes, so my focus for my PhD right now, I'm about to enter my second year. I'm looking at intersections of race and gender and maybe genre in music. So with a focus on maybe classical music, but maybe looking outside of it, especially looking at women of color. So when I initially joined, I was thinking a lot about you know, the market bonds and Florence Price generation. I was thinking about contemporary women um, working classical music. But now, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of the genre and, and the classifications that we give people and, and music. So for me, this is also a way of kind of investigating 
the same things that I've been thinking about in my repertoire. Who's belonged to classical music? Who's allowed to make classical music? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's that's something I think we share that focus with the Intercultural Music Initiative because that's very in line with what our core values are of raising awareness and bringing composers that are sort of marginalized into the mainstream both on the classical stage and elsewhere. So I really look forward to reading your research and having you <laughs> having you come back again and again to to fill us in on what you're learning and what you're what you're exploring in that area. Oh yeah, and I'd say that's one of the things I admire about IMI as well. Like I really love the way you're bringing this music to the fore and making classical music richer for it. It's like we all benefit when there are plurality of voices and, and multiple viewpoints. And mm-hmm. when people have access to this music, that has been kind of hidden. Yeah. You know, oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. That's wonderful. Well, you know, you gave us an example of this, but in general, your programs, the concerts that you perform are very thought provoking and personalized. And you invite dialogue between you as the performer and your audience. I've read it was said that your artistry provides a space to breathe and take in the world around us. Note by note, Camilla combines her heritage and classical training to create her own beautiful expression. I think that's such a very high compliment. And especially in this post-pandemic world, we can all use a little more space to breathe. Um, so what a wonderful gift that is that you bring to your audience. How do you create this dynamic in your performances? And what does that look like or sound like? That's actually, it's one of my favorite things that's ever been written about me. It's from a, a wonderful blog called Culture is Free that I did an interview with. And yeah, this idea of dialogue between the performer and audience is really important to me. I remember when I was growing up and I'd go to concerts and recitals, it really felt like there was a barrier between the person on stage and the audience. And one of the things I, I struggle with with classical music now is, is how formal it can be and how there can really be this divide, not to denigrate any wonderful musicians, but this this lack of dialogue between the performer and the audience. It's kind of like that fourth wall in theater, right? Where you yes, don't acknowledge exactly. that the audience is there. It's very similar in, in the traditional classical music presentation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think especially, especially for classical musicians now who are passionate about classical music continuing to evolve and to make it relevant, um, I think it's important to bridge that gap. And it's also fulfilling for me as an artist to feel connected with the people I'm playing for. That's part of the reason that I, I want to be a musician is so I can share the music that I love yeah. with other people. I have to say also, <laughs> I'm trying to 
thing you're connecting to the audience, it makes me less nervous. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of creating a community. So it's kind of like we're all in this together. Everyone in the audience is part of the performance. That's beautiful. So for me, it's taking leads from musicians I love. So so speaking to the audience at the beginning. So telling them about the pieces, telling them why I've picked these pieces, communicate what I love about them. And yeah, this idea of breathing on a more on a more practical level. The teachers who've kind of impacted me the most, they've made breathing and the idea of singing and this kind of natural naturalness in music a big part of of how I think about music now. So I kind of hope with this connection with the audience, when I when I breathe in before I start playing or when I'm breathing between phrases, that you know, the audience is kind of breathing with me. We're all living the music together. Yeah, I bet they are. <laughs> so. It's it's so true. I was just thinking the image that came to my mind was listening to a jazz concert because one of the things I love about watching jazz is that the musicians on stage are literally having a dialogue with each other and yeah. and with the audience at times. And whether that means they're trading solos, they're copying each other's riffs, or they they are literally talking in, with words to each other. That constant sort of, it's like you're witnessing a conversation and then you're invited to become a part of that conversation as the audience. And I think when I see classical performers borrowing that model, like you're talking about, of including the audience, it means so much more. It means more to me as an audience member to watch you play when I know why you chose that piece, what it means to you. Mm -hmm. And then the more they know, the more they feel invited in, I bet the more they are breathing with you and <laughs> borrowing that energy that you're sharing from the stage. It's a beautiful thing. I think that's, that's what makes live music performances so different than recordings and so special. Exactly. That's actually a really good point. I mean, there has to be a reason that people want to come to witness live music. Like there is this electricity and there is this, I mean, even music that we're playing that's from a score, there's still this spontaneity. There's still this, you know, every performance is going to be different because you're having a different conversation with the score and you're having a different conversation with the audience exactly so it can still be yeah this exciting live connection i love that i love that well since 2008 music for liberia's donations have enabled its charity partners to fund crucial work like building libraries supporting rural schools and providing accommodation for ebola orphans and more Music for Liberia has also invited young musicians to work with and perform alongside professional musicians, which is quite impressive. Why do you think that it's so important for children to have these kinds of opportunities? I really, I really believe in giving children all the opportunities to witness and be part of excellence up close. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think they get from our musicians is they see musicians who give 100% in their performances, who push themselves creatively, who really embrace this idea of self-expression. And for, for the students that we kind of pair with these musicians, I can see how inspiring that is, how it gives them confidence to push themselves. It kind of expands their idea of what's possible, you know, not only in, in music, but beyond. Like I really believe you know, music education benefits students, whether they want to go on to be a professional musician or whether music's just going to be a part of their lives, a hobby that they enjoy. So seeing these professional musicians who master their craft, who are proud of the hours they put into their, their music and who perform with exuberance and joy, I think that's an opportunity that all, 
all students deserve to have. Oh yeah. Um, so with Music for Liberia, we've worked mainly with two amazing student groups. We've worked with Kumba Youth Music, that's based in East London. It's an orchestra of mostly students of color. We've paired them with a string quartet that I adore and she's doing really well in the UK called the Heath Quartets. And they've performed for Music Liberia a few times and watching their rehearsals and watching especially watching the students push themselves because now they have this new sound in their, in their heads. They've, they've witnessed this new level of performance and watching how the Heath Quartet in this case really empowers young people. I remember in one performance that they actually, they did an octet with the Kumba's string quartet and they had the students leading so they really empowered the kids to lead the performance on stage and to feel like it was it was theirs, which I really loved. Oh. And then the case the other group we work with, um, World Heartbeat Music Academy, um, which is which is a, an amazing school in in Southwest London that has a wonderful classical and an amazing jazz program. And so we've paired them with African musicians, so a storyteller Yusuf Jallo, a wonderful choral player Kajali Piate, and this just bombastic marimba bands, Otto and the Mutapa Calling. And having these students with this classical and this jazz background be exposed to another style, a completely different musical vocabulary. I mean, having them realize that the borders between these genres of music can be broken. So one of our most exciting performances were having violin students and jazz students, vocalists working with these African musicians and just crafting this totally new piece, this new style. That was really special. So I yeah. think, I mean, all of these opportunities can really broaden, broaden students' minds and inspire them and leave them, you know, with a sense of pride in what they've accomplished working with these musicians. Well, and it gives me so much hope for the future, not only of music, but of the world, just the intercultural relationships that are being formed. I think that's such a positive impact. Exactly. Yeah. I think one of my favorite comments after a Music for Liberia concert was a, a Music for Liberia concert was a woman who, she came and she was really excited. And she just told me after the concert, she was like, you know, listen to this music. I realized that all music is the same. And what I took from that was, I don't know, the, the expression and the communication in any kind of music is the same. Like the way it touches audiences is the same. And I find that really beautiful. It's so true, right? You know, there's so much that divides us. There's so much that separates us, including our languages in many cases. But music is truly the universal language, right? We can, (laughs) we all feel it no matter what language we speak. The, The emotions transcend that. That's really, that's really true. How beautiful. The mission of your hashtag every voice challenge is to champion and celebrate diversity in the classical piano repertoire by promoting music by composers of color. A curated collection of well-known classics, unearthed gems, and specially commissioned pieces 
comprise your passion for this music that challenges students and teachers alike to embrace the wealth of music for piano by often very neglected composers. I think this is such an ambitious and important project, especially since it promotes repertoire that teachers do not regularly assign to their piano students. What is your goal for this project and how are you going to measure its success or how are you measuring its success? <laughs> yeah, that's always, that's always a good question. How, how do we measure the success? Um, so that Revoice Challenge was a, it was a lockdown project of mine. Uh-huh. So I was, yeah, I was very fortunate during lockdown. I kept on teaching on Zoom. I had space to kind of apply for my PhD and, and work on some other creative projects and this is one I think I I wouldn't have been able to do. Teaching in the UK, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a there's kind of an exam system that's very set that most students take part in every year. A student chooses three pieces, they they prepare scales and arpeggios, do sight reading, etc. And that's how they kind of progress to the next level in the UK. That's that's how progress is measured in a lot of schools, which is really motivating for some students. Um, I at times found it frustrating as a teacher and I, I was especially aware of the lack of diversity in the syllabus. So mm-hmm. it's mostly English composers, which of course makes sense, but pretty much all white men. Right. <laughs> a little just, I found it a little discouraging at times, uh-huh. especially because in the past five, 10 years, there are new there are new publications. There's a lot of movement in education to diversify syllabus and early music education. So when all of these exams were suspended during the height of the pandemic, I thought what an opportunity to have my students play music outside of the syllabus. And I I, I was especially thinking of my young women, uh, my students of color who didn't really see themselves reflected in in the music they're preparing. Isn't that a good point? Because the students are not all white men, right? No, the students are not all <laughs> white men. Definitely not. Definitely not. And yeah. it's important for me. I mean, I didn't see myself in the music I was playing when I was growing up. But I think I wasn't even aware of this of this problem. It's really been since I started teaching. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I did research this in my first, you know, pre-PhD research projects and I contacted a lot of very generous composers who either wrote a little piece for beginners or donated a piece that they had. I kind of combed free resources online and and tried to locate editions of music by these composers and then just organized it and put it up on my website. So yeah, I was going to ask you, how can people access these books? Oh, it is on my, it's on my website. So on my website, you can get information about the about the library, and then you fill out a form, you contact me, and then I send you the full link. So, oh wow, it's yeah, so it's still ongoing. We had a wonderful concert in twenty in twenty twenty one, where we had pianists from Europe and from the US who joined and recorded pieces, and then we had an online recital of Every Voice Challenge Library pieces which is really inspiring. I was so happy that my students took part. I was so excited by how excited they were to discover this new music. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And it's a project I want to keep going. Again, it's just, it's on my website. I'm happy to share it. I'm also, 
I'm, I'm thinking of trying to expand the project now that I'm at NYU with their support. Yeah. Um, but I also see a lot, for example, this the exam board in the UK has now made a huge effort to change their syllabus. And I think they also took, good for you. Yeah, they took the pandemic to kind of reflect and to reach out to musicians of color and see how they could approach it better. So I think this change in music education is really coming and I find that really inspiring. That is exciting. And way to go to take advantage of that pause that we all had, you know, stop the world I want to get off. And here we had this chance to do it. And sort of have a have a breath. Here we are back to taking that breath, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, getting a chance to look at some things and reevaluate their worth and their value and, and what's still working for us and what do we need to change or add or expand upon. I think what a wonderful thing that you took that opportunity and, and gave that gift to not only your students, but now to the world, anyone who wants it. Thank you for doing that. Oh, yeah. I'm very happy to done it. Yeah. I know you're coming on October 9th. We're going to see you pretty soon here in St. Louis. Tell me a little bit about the pieces or the program that you're putting together for us. What composers are you going to be performing? And what do you look forward to sharing with your audience here? Oh, yeah, I'm very excited about the program coming up on the 9th. I'll be playing with Wendy Hines. So we're for me, this is all new music, which I'm really excited about. Um, oh, okay. So there's some composers that I've played before. Gamal Abdel Rahim, the Egyptian composer. I've played some solo works, but I've never played any of his chamber music. So we're playing a really beautiful piece called The Lotus Pond um, that I'm really excited about. Uh, a gorgeous piece by Valerie Coleman, who's another composer that I, was, that I knew, but I've never had the chance to play her works. So doing another duo piece uh, with Wendy by her. In terms of solo repertoire, I'm bringing some of my favorite music. So music by a lot of contemporary women that I adore. So Erilyn Wallen from the UK, who's written this amazing kind of salsa-inspired, just a really exciting, compact piece that I think I'm going to open with because it's such a, it's such a burst of energy. Um, Ooh, neat. <laughs> and then uh, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just practicing it this morning. And it's just when it's a good piece to practice in the morning, it really wakes you up. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say get your get your coffee, morning exactly. cup of coffee, right? <laughs> exactly. And then I'm I'm another another set of pieces I'm really looking forward to playing are two by Nkiro Koye, who's a New York-based composer who I got to meet last year in New York. So she's written suites that that's inspired by her Nigerian heritage. So I'll be playing two of those pieces, which are beautifully written for the piano and, and really, really easy to connect to and personalize. And then let's see, one more, let's talk about one more. I am playing, I'm not sure how many, but a couple of songs and dances by the Catalonian composer Federico Mompu, who is the composer that I really fell in love with a couple of years ago. And I think he's being increasingly celebrated. He's a composer who wrote a lot of miniatures. Again, highly personal. I really think about know, breathing and, and singing and self-expression. These are pieces that I sing along to when I'm practicing them. <laughs> oh, how lovely. <laughs> yeah, they're really, they're really beautiful. And I think they they present an idea of home and saying you imagine the landscape in a way that I really connect to in a lot of other music in the program. So I I love when composers draw on their own heritage, just like the Imperial Koya oh, yeah. piece and these Mompu pieces. 
and for me, there's a real connection with music and kind of the visuals and, and the thinking of poetry and other forms of expression. And these pieces, I think, really draw on that. They really engage all of the senses in the way that they're written. That's lovely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can't wait to see this. This is going to be awesome. Oh, Camilla, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me and share so openly about your music, your inspirations, and your humanity. We are so fortunate to have you gifting your artistry in the world. And here in St. Louis, we can't wait to hear you perform at the Intercultural Music Initiative. For more information about Camilla Arcu and to hear her on the piano, please visit her website at Camilla, K-A-M-I-L-L-A, Arcu, A-R-K-U, dot com. And to hear Camilla live in St. Louis, please go to www.i musici.org and order tickets for her performance on Sunday, October 9th at Webster Groves Presbyterian Church. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this concert. Yay! Thank you for listening to this episode of the IMI podcast. For more information about the Intercultural Music Initiative and to buy tickets to our upcoming performances, please visit www.imusici.org. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Mm-hmm.